So Jeremiah chapter 15, I will begin reading at verse 10 and read through verse 21. Jeremiah chapter 15, beginning at verse 10. Let us attend to the reading of God's holy word. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, Have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as spoil without price. For, for all your sins throughout all your territory, I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me. And take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me. For you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you. To save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is the word of the Lord. Almighty God, we hunger for your word because we cannot live without it. We sing in response to your word. We give in response to your word. We say thanks be to God. We hunger for your word when it is gracious, merciful, Loving, forgiving, and generous. Otherwise, not so much. Not so much when our contradictions are exposed. Not so much when you call us to action that is beyond our readiness. Not so much when we get indication of your snarkiness and impatience with us. Not so much when you ask more of us than we have done or have imagined we could do. Not so much when you pluck up and tear down. Not so much when we are revealed. Not so much when we are exposed as weaker and more filthy than we thought. May we be called out beyond ourselves. Burn away, prune what must die in us, so that we might have life. In Jesus' name, amen. I have never liked the movie. I've never liked that sound either. But I've never liked the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. This was always a problem. Because growing up, when we got around Christmas, my parents always made us watch it together as a family. It was also a problem for me not to like this movie, because it's a good movie. And it's frustrating not to enjoy, not to like, not to appreciate things that others are into. And it's frustrating not to like things that are 
objectively good or true or that signal towards truth or perhaps reality is a better way of saying it. I think when I was younger, it was because the movie It's a Wonderful Life just stressed me out. Just like that, his kids are gone. Zuzu's petals vanish. And the idea of taking for granted everyday moments, taking time for granted, and wishing away moments that you have, and then they literally cease to have ever existed because you wish them away, I can feel my anxiety building just talking about it. I think life is stressful enough. I don't want someone else's stress. Especially because the themes and the regret and the struggle, at least in that movie, was just too close to home. Give me Iron Man's struggles or Thomas Shelby's struggles or Chief of Police Jim Hopper's struggles. I'm fine with that. But George Bailey's struggles and his troubles are my troubles and my struggles. I'm stressed out enough about my life. I don't need to be reminded how stressful my life is by watching his stressed out life. But perhaps another reason that I still don't like the movie, although I'm not so sure this was the case when I was younger, is that I have had times where I wished I wasn't born. And I can't, I can't reconcile that sense, that feeling, that crisis of existence with the other things that I know to be true. The movie, of course, because it's a movie, wraps those perhaps unreconcilable conditions or experiences, it wraps it up, ties it off with a nice little bow at Christmas time, and Clarence gets his wings. But you and I, we still have moments. And we don't want to keep living, or rather, we just wish we had never been. It's a common, it's an ancient lament found in Job and here again in Jeremiah. This is how we begin the passage. Wasn't that cheerful? Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me. Essentially, woe that I was ever brought into this world. Woe that I was ever born. Now, perhaps we can try to crack open or crawl into the space that this prophet inhabits. But I think to get into the rest of where he goes, to understand that and to understand how the Lord responds, we need to back up and realize a few things. Primarily, what does it mean to be a prophet? If I were to ask you, what is a prophet? What, what does a prophet do? Uh, we might think that they are miracle workers. Elijah, Elisha come to mind. We might think they're crazy. Ezekiel, someone that lives in the wilderness and eats locusts. John the Baptist. We might think of someone loud and audacious. Do we think of prophets as poets? Eccentric? Perhaps most commonly we think that it is someone that predicts the future. More on that later. However, in Scripture, from the beginning... Prophets are understood as, or we could say, that a prophet is at baseline a friend of God. A friend of God. And interestingly, do you know who the first person in the Bible ever identified as a prophet is? Abraham. Abraham is the first person called a prophet in Genesis 20. Verse 7, I believe I put that on your meditation on the front of the bulletin. Uh, Abraham, in this context, is approaching this foreign land. He's approaching this foreign king, Abimelech, this somewhat shady character who clearly has wealth and power. And this man takes Sarah, Abram's wife, into his harem. 
And then, of course, this curse of barrenness, this plague is put on his house. And God tells Abimelech, go to Abraham. He is a prophet, verse 7 of chapter 20, and he will speak to me on your behalf to alleviate the curse. So Abraham speaks to God on behalf of these other people, and the curse is lifted. But Abraham was identified, at least by relationship, as a friend of God, even before Genesis 20 in Genesis 18, where God says, Am I to hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Specifically in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God decides, no, 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 my relationship with him is so close that I, I won't hide from Abraham what I'm going to do. So he tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham do? Much like Moses, we'll see in a second. He speaks with God. He speaks with God on behalf of unnamed righteous people. Isaiah 41.8 identifies Abraham as God's friend. This is repeated in James 2.23. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7 identifies Abraham as the friend of God. And that baseline, prophets are friends of God. And what do friends do? Well, they have conversations. They think with one another. They talk and they kind of know how the other person thinks. They can even finish each other's sentences. They speak to one another, for one another. And again, like I mentioned, we see this with Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain and speaks with God, and God speaks with him. Moses relays the messages to God's people from God. And when the people disobey, so this is after the deliverance from Egypt, God says, okay, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you immensely. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. They've been grumbling and showing some signs of problems. But God says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to bless you. You will be my personal treasure. And the people in Exodus 19.20 say, great, that sounds wonderful. We will obey. So Moses goes up on the mountain. It takes a while. People begin to worry and fear. And they start worshipping false gods and this idol. And God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. And what does Moses say? Sounds good, God, go ahead. No, he says, no. He literally tells God, as God's friend, no, God, you can't do that. The whole world is talking about what you did for your people, what you did to Egypt. What, what will destroying your people cause the nations to say? That's not you, God. That's not your mercy. That's not your kindness. Moses actually says, blot me out of your book and spare the idolaters down there. I would rather be destroyed and you spare your people than you destroy your people and spare me. It makes sense why we read in Exodus 33:11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The prophets have this type of access to God. They stand in God's presence and they stand in God's place speaking God's word for him. Now, you may wonder, why does that matter? Well, first, it's helpful every now and then to back up and look at what we're dealing with in general. This relationship between God and Abraham or um, Jeremiah is at the fore here. But also because you would have to be friends with someone. I would even say you would have to be close friends with someone before you would be comfortable speaking this way to them. Jeremiah finds himself in quarrels and litigation on every front, to despair of his own life even. And he takes it to God, and he declares his innocence. He essentially says, no valid charge can be laid against me. I have not engaged in any action that would invoke such hostility. I have not exploited, abused, taken advantage of anyone. So the first complaint to God, to his friend, if we phrase it that way, is, I haven't done anything wrong to deserve this. Second, Jeremiah says, not only have I not done wrong, I have positively done well. 
I've stood in the gap. I've spoken not just to Israel, but for Israel. I am on their side. I am them. Now, again, try to zoom back out of the text. One really weird thing to think about is that these words of Jeremiah, what I mean by that is the words of Jeremiah from chapters 1 to chapters 14, maybe 15 through 9 is fine, those words of Jeremiah were preserved by the community. We have them. The Israelite community, the Jerusalem community, preserved all these words. In other words, they kept the very words that denounced them. They decided to include them. They decided to include these words as part of the texts that define them as a people. Why would Israel, why would Jerusalem, why would Judah keep texts that condemn them, that vilify, that accuse, that attack, that criticize, that censure, that judge them? Well, it would seem at some level, the very fact that they retained these words and that we have these words is vindication for Jeremiah. At some point, this very community looked at Jeremiah's words and said, he's right, or he was right, or he is right. That alone is intriguing. Now, recently, I have suggested to you in a sermon how important our words are, how important telling the truth is, that that words create reality. There's an immense amount of power in our words and how necessary, how foundational, how vital it is to speak the truth. And that's what Jeremiah has been doing. He's been speaking the truth for chapters. And I mentioned earlier this evening that many of us think of prophets as primarily predicting the future. I don't think I would say that is primarily what they do, but even with that in mind, it's a pretty simple prediction. Most of the prophetic ink that we have is really just prophets saying, uh, God's word is going to come true. Because prophet math is very simple math. It's a very simple calculus. And typically prophets are just repeating what has been said in Deuteronomy and everywhere else. Here, here's the math. If you obey, you'll prosper. If you disobey, you'll find yourself either in wilderness or exile or surrounded by enemies or besieged. And the prophets just list the curses that Moses gave them. Now, the prophets probably also read the local newspapers, so they knew that there was this people from the north. It's in line with what they've heard and what the people have heard, and so they can use that as well. And as friends of God, they were able to clearly see what was evil and what was good. As people who remained friends with God, they were in a position to more accurately see what was evil and what wasn't. And when the kingdom's policies and the the culture of the nation slipped into serving mammon, when the people of Jerusalem began acting as though God was a commodity, something important to kind of have around, you want to appease him every now and then. And when God's people started compartmentalizing their worship instead of making their life a sacrifice of praise, when God's people separated love of God from love of neighbor, well, Jeremiah saw it. He said something about it. And yet Jeremiah's experience is rather upside down. He experiences a problem with the math. Again, there's a simple calculus in much of the dogma and much of the doctrine of Scripture. We know what wrong words do to us, what twisting words do to us. But Jeremiah spoke what was right. He spoke right words, correct words, true words, God's words, however we want to state it. And what did he get for it? How have things gone for him? 
Well, they've gone from worse to worse. He's no George Bailey. He gets no influx of given cash and an opportunity to see how necessary and loved he is. Clarence doesn't get his wings. God's math doesn't work out for Jeremiah. He has not only been righteous, he has purposely not done anything that is unrighteous. He has done well. And he's getting pummeled, smashed. And then, and this is where I think understanding the prophets as friends of God is very important, because then he gives this riff, this sarcastic riff on Psalm 1. Basically saying, where is Psalm 1 when I need it, God? Look at verse 16, if you're still in Jeremiah 15. It says, your words were found and I ate them. Your word was a joy, it was rejoicing. And I'm going to give a little different translation for verse 17. Jeremiah says, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers. And then further on, will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream? As waters that fail? I mean, this, this is some savage poetry. Only a friend of God could do this with God's word. Jeremiah is essentially saying, I am planted by streams of water. I have meditated on your law day and night. And the stream is failing, God. The stream is faltering. Your stream, is it drying up? Your calculus isn't working. Have I not done what you asked of me? And then verse 19, because the only thing more savage than Jeremiah's poem is God's response. Verse 19 literally reads, If you return, I will return you. They will turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Essentially, this is, this is God's response to Abra, or, uh, Jeremiah's sarcastic use of Psalm 1. God essentially says, But Jeremiah, you haven't done enough. There's more to do. You can still turn towards me more. Not even Jeremiah at this point has met, fully met, the expectations of God. One of the two, in my opinion, one of the two greatest moments in C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy, is when Shasta and Bree, Erebus and Quinn are being chased by this lion, hunted more like it. They are as weak and as frail, as dehydrated and exhausted as you or I have ever been. And yet they must keep running or die. They are on their last gas, trying to make it through to Arkenland to warn King Loon about the attack that is coming his way, the secret attack of Rabidash. But this lion is hunting them, and he's gaining on Quinn and Bree. Shasta sees this, and he, he leaps from his horse in an asinine attempt to try to protect Quinn and Erebus. Meanwhile, the lion swipes at Erebus. Quinn, the horse, screams, and Erebus is covered in her own blood. Shasta finally scrambles to his feet, and he's the last one through the gate. Shasta looks up at the old man who welcomes them. He can barely catch his breath through panting and gasping for air, asking the stately man if he is the king, if he is King Loon of Arkenland. And the old man says, No, I am the hermit of the Southern March. And now, my son, waste no time on questions, but obey. This damsel is wounded, your horses are spent. Rabidash is at this moment finding a ford over the winding arrow. If you run now without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn King Loon. Lewis writes this. Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt he had no strength left. And he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty 
and unfairness of the demand. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and harder and better one. But all he said out loud was, Where is the king? The hermit turned and pointed with his staff. Look, he said, there is another gate right opposite to the one you entered by. Open it and go straight ahead, always straight ahead, over level or steep, over smooth or rough, over dry or wet. I know by my art that you will find King Loon straight ahead. But run, run, always run. Jeremiah is at the end of his faith, the end of his rope with Yahweh. And Yahweh essentially says, find more ways to be faithful to me, and I will find new ways to sustain you. How do we deal with a poem that is an invitation wrapped in suffering, a welcome wrapped in pain? It doesn't make sense. It definitely isn't fair. And you may curse the day you were born. You may wonder why. Why, when I am doing well, and when I'm not doing bad things, I'm still stretched so thin, why is this suffering not just still here, but more painful? Why? Well, I would argue that the closer you get to God, or rather, the better a friend you are to him, with him, if you are a friend of God's, and if you become even more of a friend with God, the more you will suffer. Just look at his only son. And yet, you will be sustained in new ways. It may not always be a wonderful life, but you must keep running. So run, run, always run. Amen.